0: Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons, or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's sermon. Good morning, church. Let's open our Bibles to Romans chapter 2. We're going to begin right there at the beginning of the chapter, verse 1. If you're visiting today, my name is Mark. Uh, We're glad you're with us. I have the privilege of being one of the ministers here, and we've been in this series. I want to review what we've been challenging you the last three weeks to do, and uh, uh, hold you to those three levels, and just have you challenge yourself. The first thing we want you to do, to understand how to use Romans in all of its power, because it is one of the most powerful letters that Paul would write, and it's impact even today. First thing is, make a commitment to be here. I know life happens. But being here, uh, you can't get what you get on podcast or video by not being in the room with all of the celebration and surrounded by the people. First of all, be here for yourself. Second of all, be here for the people around you, including your family. Second thing is begin to read the book of Romans so that as we go over these uh, processes, the Holy Spirit can use the questions you're developing to lead all of us. And lastly, there are classes at that, that the 915 hour. There's a Sunday school class located in our educational hallway. Uh, on the book of Romans or you can come on Wednesday nights uh, when Michael DeFazio will be teaching here in this room. If you can't make Wednesday nights, those are available online as well to be able to listen to. I wasn't able to be here uh, because I was subbing for another teacher last Wednesday. Got to listen to it on Thursday. Uh, It was a good hour, hour and a half of my day invested in studying Romans at a deeper level. So those three things we're asking for everybody. Be here, read the book of Romans regularly And lastly, open yourself up to some of the deeper teaching that's available to you uh, in this season in the life of our church. In week one, I talked to you about Paul's introduction, the first 17 verses of the first chapter, and what it dealt with was who Paul was, his new purpose, and the obligation he felt because of God's mercy to offer that mercy to others, that the righteousness of God was salvation, That what God was offering us is not what we generate, but what he generates. And Paul gave that famous statement in verse 17, I am unashamed of the gospel. Nothing to hide. He said, I have an obligation to tell other people about that gospel too. Last week, Michael talked with us in in one of those radical passages, if I may, in the book of Romans, verses 18 through 32, and how that deals with the perversity going on in our arrogant culture. And it's been going on in the world ever since. When we replace God, we fall into a deep, deep pit of darkness. And we keep descending to the point that we just say that there is no God. And in the midst of all of this, Michael showed us, and he used a a really interesting illustration about how sometimes when you go in a grocery store, if one of the uh, wheels is bent on the cart, no matter how much you want to go to the right, that cart wants to take you to the left. And we have a bent nature. And we have a bent mind and a bent will. And so he challenged us to remember our bent toward idolatry. Because idolatry is anytime we replace God with something that isn't God whether it's money or sex, relationships, jobs, power, authority, anytime we say, I'm going to survive on this, rather than relying completely on God, it's idolatry. And idolatry has buried our entire world and our culture. And let's be honest, you can replace the word me with you, but idolatry's ruined me too. Because I'm always trying to find something that takes it easier on me, that has less expectation for me, that is more tangible in the right now. And sometimes God avails himself. So we've been talking about this now for two weeks, the first chapter, and, and it ended graphically last week because Michael listed a number of sins that are just horrific. And when we look at those, we're, we're shocked. When they happen in our own life, we're even more shocked. What I'd like to be able to do is take you through a very lengthy passage of Scripture. We can't go verse by verse. Uh, we just don't have time to do it. And Michael's gonna be teaching on this and, and uh, Mike Smith, who teaches on Sundays, will be teaching the same passage. So if you wanna go deeper, it's available. What I want to be able to do is kind of do a lily pad approach to this text. I want to bounce on key passages to show you what Paul's talking about. It's rather lengthy, so let's walk through it. The first point Paul makes in chapter two is the inconsistency of human judgment. After listing all the sins that he listed and the idolatry that's taking place in the world, Paul was aware that if you've not done what those those people did, that you'd have a tendency to feel superior. He's writing to the Jews in Rome. They did feel superior. They felt like because they hadn't done those things that they were better than those who had. Paul says in verse one, therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge, for whenever, for in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. If you've read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you know that Jesus didn't play when it came to self-righteousness. When a person felt better than another person, they were basing their life on, on evaluating how they were doing compared to the person next to you. And Jesus warned you not to do that. The standard of God's approval is not, are you the best person in this room? The standard of God's approval, are you right with him? And is he right with you? So in light of that, Paul begins by simply saying, if you feel that because you haven't done six of the big seven sins or nine of the big 11 sins mentioned in the previous chapter, that you're better, he said, be careful. Because you practice the same idolatry, even though its form may not be as external and as obvious. See, self-righteousness of the most dangerous kind is the person who feels better about themselves because they're better than another person. We can't do that. It's a dangerous game, and it doesn't get you anywhere, because it is making yourself the idol you worship. My comfort, my image, my prestige is all based on how I judge myself against another. Paul said, don't. It's inconsistent, and most of all, it's inaccurate. Then he goes on to talk about the integrity of divine judgment. And this is a passage of Scripture that's going to be a little bit hard to swallow today. I want you to stay with me through the end, okay? You can get turned off really easy by this, because we don't like to talk about judgment. In fact, we've dismissed judgment. Look at verse two. But we know. Pause. Notice that Paul doesn't make a defense. He doesn't give the reasons. He doesn't even enter into an argument about whether or not God will judge. Paul says we know He will. But we live in a day and an age that has dismissed that as probable. We've we've decided we're smarter than them. But I want you to know, even in the age in Rome, when Rome ruled the earth, they had no doubt that their gods would judge them for how they lived. Let's continue. We know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. See, here's what we know. God will judge by truth. For those who want to say today, God would never condemn anybody, or those who say a loving God will accept everyone, his love will win out, and it'll overcome his wrath, and it'll overcome his judgment or I'll take my chances, I think I'm better than I used to be, I'm going to stand on that, those people are ignorant of what the Bible has truly said. Because if you believe in the love of God, then your God cannot be a liar. Because God has said, I will judge you, the good and the bad. I will judge all of it. And it will always be judged by truth. Here's the good news, God doesn't have to fabricate anything. All of us have been accused of something in our lives, I'm sure, someone who thought they knew us accused us of something we did not do and it hurt our hearts because we didn't do it but they assumed automatically we had and there was no truth based on that judgment. But listen, God's not going to fabricate, he's not out to get you. He's not going to make something up. He's simply going to take the evidence of your life and he's going to weigh it. And it will be exact and perfect in its assessment. Secondly, God will judge all of us. Christians, You stand before the judgment throne of God, and your life, your words, all of it will be judged. And do you think this, oh man, you who judge those who practice such things, and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Now you can say, well no, I'm not an adulterer, I'm not a fornicator, I I don't do this, I don't do that. He's not talking about the specific sins, he's talking about the idolatry of them, which is what Michael pointed out so well last week. He says, do you think that because their overt sins and their idolatry were noticeable that your unnoticeable sins by man are gonna allow you to be exempt? You know better than that. You see, the Jews thought there was one rule for them and one rule for all the heathens, and that's ridiculous, isn't it? They just thought that God would let them off the hook because he liked them more. Let's pause, and let me use those same phrases and just replace the words. There are some Christians who think That there's a special set of rules for them as compared to all the other heathens. And that's a little more unsavory. Because we're not saved by our goodness. We're saved by Jesus' goodness. And Paul says, do you understand that no one will escape the reality of his or her own actions? That God will hold all of us to the same standard he told us from the very, very beginning. If you don't believe that God will make a judgment on your behavior, talk to Adam and Eve about theirs. He's been doing it from day one. He hasn't changed at all his heart for dealing with sin. Next, God has delayed his judgment, but he won't forever. He has not judged us. He has not done what he could have. Now, I know I have to repent of this. I got scolded a little bit, and it's, it's correct. But when I was growing up, one of the shows I liked to sneak in my bedroom and watch that my parents didn't care so, for so much was Monty Python's Flying Circus. And so I'm tainted, so blame them. But I've always wondered, and truthfully, I've wondered this since I was about 11 or 12 years old, and I became fully aware of my sin and who God was. I've always wondered why God, especially when he's given me the opportunities he's given me and I've rejected some of them or taken advantage of some of them, why his big hand doesn't come out of the clouds and just flick me off the globe. Because here's the truth, he should have. And even today, he should dispose of me for being a man who never took full access of all he offered me. You see, he's delayed his judgment and I, for one, have benefited from it. Verse four. Or do you despise the riches of his goodness forbearance and long suffering not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance but in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart you are treasuring up for yourselves wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God God will not be mocked he will not be toyed with the time that he's given us he's given us as a blessing he's given us as kindness he's not forgotten that God has delayed his judgment on each one of us because he wants to offer us mercy. And so the message of the day is, are you receiving what's available to you by God this moment? Because if not, he will not delay forever. One day he will call everybody out of the pool and he's gonna judge every single one of us. Next, God will give each of us what we've asked for. I was taught this at church camp. I'll never forget it. The guy who... uh, taught me. It was a guy named Dave Meeting. He was a youth minister uh, in Warsaw, Indiana, and he came to camp, and he preached a campfire message. I'll never forget the rest of my life, and his whole message was this. God will give you what you ask for. If you ask for mercy, God will be merciful. If you ask for justice, you've made the worst mistake of your life. You see, verse 6, who will render to each one according to his deeds eternal life to those who by patient continuance and doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality? But to those who are self-seeking, idolatry. And do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, idolatry, indignation, and wrath. God will give you what you ask for. Jesus came to offer us hope. He did not come to condemn, he came to save. And he will not save us against our will. We have to submit and surrender. Lastly, God is impartial. Romans 2.11, for there is no partiality with God. God doesn't favor you over anybody else. And God doesn't think less of you over anybody else. Here's the truth of who our God is. The person who is the most reprobate person in the world today, who's committing crimes and hurting innocents and dealing in injustice and capitalizing on evil, that person is as loved by God as I am and you are. God is Impartial. His love for us is not indicated by how we behave. His love is indicated by we are made in his image. And his wrath will come because his love's been rejected. So Paul says to the Jews in Rome, don't think you're all that. He loves the heathen Gentile as much as he loves the Orthodox Jew. Romans 2.16. In the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ, According to my gospel. So here's the two phrases I want you to pick up in verse 16. The secrets of men. Hey, do you remember in, when you were reading through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in your life that you came across moments where it said Jesus knew their hearts? It said he, he knew their hearts. He knew their souls. He, he could, knew what was going on in their minds. So he'd ask the question to James and John, what are you two talking about? Nothing. Come on. You're talking about who's the greatest. And they were stunned that he knew. He knew their hearts. Well, here's the thing that you need to know. There are five words in the New Testament for judging something, okay? Of those five, Jesus has given us permission to do three of them. Two of them, he says, you're not competent, capable, don't do it. The two ways that we're not to judge, because you know it used to be the most popular verse in all of uh, the entire world, the verse that everybody knew of their Bible was, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believed in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Now, do you know what the number one quoted verse in all of the world is by the heathen and the saved? Judge not lest you be judged. So that means you do something wrong, people look at you and go, who are you to judge? You cast the first stone and totally abuse the Bible you can judge behavior. If someone is fornicating with somebody, you can judge that. It's wrong. It doesn't have to be voted on. It's wrong. Why? Because God said it's wrong. It's not good. It's not healthy. You're harming both partners. Stop. We can judge that without condemning them to hell because the behavior is wrong. However, Jesus has told us you can't judge the intents of a person's heart If you've ever had someone tell you why you did something and it infuriated you, it's because you knew they were wrong and they weren't giving you grace or trusting you at all. So Jesus said, you don't know what's going on in a person's heart. We don't know why people did what they did. We like to think we do, but be careful. Jesus said, you're incompetent to do that. And the second thing we're never to do is judge someone's eternal destination. Jesus never asks us to vote on who gets in and who goes out. He's the one who does it. So who judges the intents of the heart? Notice the next phrase. We will be judged by Jesus. He's the one who knows the heart. He's the one who will be accurate. He's the one who brings the judgment. See, when you talk about baby Jesus, I love me some baby Jesus. So cute and awesome and started out poor and made a life. I love that. Healer of the sick. Yeah, who doesn't love that Jesus? Jesus. The one who told the great parables that still mesmerizes us years later, everybody loves that Jesus. The one who played with the kids and told the disciples to get away, love that guy. The victim on the cross, so much respect, so much humility, so much love for that man. The judge Jesus, eh, I could live without that one. Because we don't want our Jesus to be that way, do we? We want the happy Jesus, we want the miracle Jesus, we want the healing Jesus, we want the laughing with the kids and rolling in the grass with them, having fun Jesus, that's who we want. We want the Jesus who brings lunch, we want that Jesus. But the Jesus who looks at us and says you're wrong, no, no, that's not Jesus, he's love. No, love says you're wrong too. He's the only one to judge, the only one God will ask to judge, and we will be judged by him. Not how you're doing compared to your neighbor, and praise God, not how you're doing in comparison to Jesus. He's going to judge you by your heart, your loyalty. Fidelity is an old word. Fidelity fits perfect. So what are the signs of a disconnected faith? Because Paul has just established you judge people, but your judgment is inconsistent because you don't apply it to yourself. And the real judge is going to judge not only your actions, but the intentions of your heart. So how do we know if we're disconnected like the Jews were? Well, you know you are when you have profession without submission. Profession without submission. Here's what's happened, and I can say this because I think I've done enough research to be able to show you that this isn't just my wild opinion on a Sunday morning. In America, the message of the gospel, Michael's talked about it last week, and it resonated with me. We must understand the gospel. Not, now, many of us go, yeah, yeah, I've been to church my whole life. I know what the gospel is. But most of us have one half of the gospel or gospel light, and that is that Jesus came to save us from our sins. That is only one part of it he came us he came to save us from our sins so he could establish his kingdom in which we would serve our king and bless every nation that existed so in other words you can't have jesus as savior if you don't have him as lord so what you can have are people that profess that he's god but never submit to him in any level so i use the big word like fornicate in church and everybody goes Hope we don't talk about that all day. But the truth is, how can any of us continue to worship God as Savior when we keep throwing the same sins in His face regularly and refuse to submit to His Lordship? Church, is He right or not? He's right. Part of Lordship is honoring the fact that our King desires in His kingdom for us to live differently for Him. Verse 17. Indeed, you were called a Jew, special title, special people, and rest on the law and make your boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are excellent being instructed out of the law. In other words, you know what God's asked of you because he gave you the law so you could teach others how to live. Verse 21. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You, You teach them what God wants from them, but you yourself won't submit your heart. Verse 23. You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, as it is written. Paul says you boast in God because you know his will, but will you submit to his will or are you living the same idolatry that those you condemn live? The second reaction he gives is ritual without reality. Profession without submission and rituals that have no reality in your everyday life. Verse 25. For circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. But if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Verse 28. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter. So we look at circumcision and it's antique, right? It's something they used to do in the law. The the, the man in the in the family would be circumcised and all the boys would be circumcised. And it was a sign of a covenant that he is our God and and we are his people. And and then all of a sudden that, that became something that they just did, but they never honored God. They practiced idolatry and God punished Israel over and over and over. That's the history of the Old Testament. And so we sit today going, well, you know what? We don't have circumcision, praise the Lord. And so because of that, we don't have to do all these rituals. And so we're free. No, no, no. We have something that the New Testament has equated to circumcision over and over. Have you noticed it? It's called baptism. And for many of us, we've bought into one half of the gospel that says, I was baptized into Jesus and now I'm good. He owes me. I've got got a contract with him. He can't break the contract because he's faithful. He's faithful. And Paul would say the same thing. Your baptism, if it wasn't of your heart, a commitment to him meant nothing. You got wet. But if your baptism was a moment that you joined with Jesus and you were committed to one another in covenant and he was your God and you became his possession, you became his person, you became his servant, then you will have understood what the ritual means. But rituals without reality, they don't make any difference. So now we head to conclusion. What is the sobering truth of this passage about judgment? First is this, all of us are under sin. All of us. So so just we're clear what all means. I'm not talking about anybody not in this room. All of us are under sin. I love Paul because when you read this, if you've been reading it on your own, most of you, if you got to chapter four, you're like, I'll wait for church because it's dense, it's deep, he binds all these arguments together, wounds them tight, and then he sends a, starts spinning it, and you're like, ah! But I love Paul because he's having a dialogue in his mind with those he's writing to. Listen to how he starts verse nine. What shall we conclude then? If I can retranslate this, let's put it this way. What's the point? What's the point of this heavy, we're not doing well, we've never done well, we can amuse ourselves to think we're doing better, but the truth is we're still not good What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. (laughs) Any questions? How would we do on the the test? Y'all failed. All, All of us? Yeah, every single one of them. Nobody passed? Nope. So when it came to the test of righteousness, every one of us failed. Not even enough points to total. Can't even grade on the curve. All of us failed when it came to honoring God the way he's honored us. And that's what Paul's conclusion is. We're all under sin. Right there in verse uh, 9 when he says, Jews and Gentiles alike are under sin, he actually uses the phrase under sin, which means to be under the authority and domination of something. Oh, this is so hard in an American audience, but I trust you and I hope you trust me. Let me ask you a question. Feel free to answer out loud. Do you still feel in moments of your life that sin has way too much domination and authority over you? Paul says, that's the beginning of the humility it takes to understand what the gospel's all about. Even believers who have been believers for years, is there still the hearkening to take the satisfaction of the moment over the discipline of trusting God? Absolutely. Your preacher struggles with it. Your elders struggle with it. Everybody in this church, if they're honest with each other, understand what it means to be under the authority of sin. And there will some say, well, I'm free in Christ. Yeah, you're free in Christ that the penalty of that sin won't apply to you anymore. But please don't dismiss for a moment that sin is still attractive and gets your attention. It's a daily struggle for every one of us. And the person who presents themselves as over and above it, that's not fair to the person who struggles all around them daily. So let me put it this way. Any solution to the human problem of sin that does not deal with the root cause of sin is no more a solution than putting a cold washcloth on the head of a person with a fever. It doesn't stop the fever. It only takes away the symptoms. So Paul has confronted all of us with the fact that we are all under the authority of sin. There is none righteous. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. We all we all have warped minds and warped wills. Michael used that beautiful illustration about the grocery cart. Can you confess today that one of your wheels is jacked up? And no matter how much you want to drive straight, you end up turning into places you wish you'd never turn because you just can't get it figured out on your own. And this is where Paul wants us to be. Here's the point. We're never going to get there on our own. Church, we need help. So the final point of today is all of us need saved. Now, when I wrote that a couple weeks ago when I was building for this, I just put that in there as a place marker going, I'm going to write that there so I remember what I meant. And I wanted to fix it. Because I know there are people in here who have been believers longer than I've been alive. And you're like, I've already been saved. No, no, no. Listen to me. Would you agree with me? That the day you were saved, you needed saved? Everybody? Would you agree with me that two weeks after you got saved, you needed saved again? And would you agree with me when you woke up today, you could use a little saving? So we're not talking about whether you're with God or without God. Most of us need every day God to reset our wheels. Or we're going to end up going where we don't want to go for the momentary satisfaction at an eternal cost. Romans 3.20. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. Paul uses in the word knowledge there one of his favorite words. It's the word uh, epigenisa or uh, knowledge knowledge on knowledge, real knowledge, experiential knowledge, life knowledge. You know this because you've been through it, you've experienced it. Paul said all the law did was show us that none of us can save ourselves. The authority of sin still lingers in this world and we need saved from it every day of our life. So in ministry... I've had this experience. It's kind of interesting to me. People will come to me. I remember one particular Sunday uh, when I was in Michigan, a couple came up to me after church and said, could you stay a few moments longer? And I'm like, yeah. So we're hanging out there, and all of a sudden, they had some family in town. They said, uh, my mom and dad, who have been married for 55 years and two weeks, would like to renew their vows. And it wasn't big and fancy. She was all pretty. He had his suit and tie on. I knew he was a visitor because he had a suit and tie on. And... Uh, They came forward and their kids brought them up front and the grandkids were there and the wife sang the song she sang to him at their wedding 55 years previous. You see, they found out she had cancer and the doctors gave her about two months to live. And it was one of the most tearful, beautiful renewing of vows because they were celebrating 55 years of loving, serving, struggling together. It was beautiful. I've been asked to renew vows that aren't so pretty. There's been adultery. There's been deceit. They've gone their separate way. There's been abuse and anger and hatred and revenge. And they've been awakened by the mercy and hope of love. And they've come to me and said, could we have just a small ceremony to renew our vows? And as, even as awkward and messy as that scene is compared to that beautiful poetic scene I opened with, the truth is they're both beautiful, aren't they? because people are making a commitment to say no to self and yes to the other person, to regain what's been lost, to renew their vows in a powerful way. What does this text give us except like a Charlie horse? We all limp out of here going, he killed us. Michael got us last week, Mark got us this week, and he wants me to come every week? If we don't taste the bitterness of Romans two and three, we will never know the sweetness of the rest of this letter. We have to understand. So allow me to use my image. You gotta renew your vows. That's what repentance is. It's saying to Jesus, you've always been good to me. You've always been faithful to me. And I reject your love and I reject your patience and I reject your kindness, but your kindness is leading me to repentance. Jesus, could, could I start over with you? Could today I renew my commitment that I know who you are and I not only want you as my Savior, I want you as my Lord. Can we have that? And then read the prodigal son because he gives us a glimpse of who he is. What does the father say when the son returns? Let's celebrate. So for some of you, you've never given your vows to Jesus. You're assessing the church. Would I fit in there? Is it cool enough? Do I like what they do? You know, does it make me uncomfortable? Stop that if you evaluated marriage by marriage, you'd never get married. You evaluate married marriage by the person you're marrying. So don't evaluate us. Don't evaluate how messed up churches are all over, including here. Evaluate the one who wants to marry you. Give your vows to him. He'll be faithful to you. He will love you, honor, and protect you for eternity. The only question is whether or not we'll give our vows to him and keep them. So for believers of generations, today's the day to repent and renew your vows. For those of you who have never been into the marriage covenant and gone through the marriage ceremony of baptism into Jesus, and you have no idea what I'm talking about, but the Holy Spirit's working on you right now, and you're like, I think I should. Come see us. I'm gonna be in the back corner of the foyer. There'll be a number of us there. You can come privately. We can schedule an appointment. We want to answer your questions. We don't want you to do this so we can control you. We want you to do this so sin no longer has control over you. That's why we're here. So this morning during the music or after the service, feel free to come out in the foyer. Don't be embarrassed and don't let anybody else judge you in this. Remember, their judgment's inaccurate. You know the intent of your heart. Jesus knows the intent of your heart, and he's talking to every one of us today. Will we respond? Let's stand together. Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.